This is Due South Broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Jeff Tabiri. A moderate, a peanut farmer, a Washington outsider, James Earl Carter has often been called a misunderstood public figure whose one-term presidency was overshadowed by the world crises that occurred during it. These included the Iran hostage crisis, a subsequent energy crisis in 1979, and an inflation rate of more than 14 percent, which led to national fears of recession. President Jimmy Carter's southern roots also distinguished him as a complicated leader, working across the aisle with segregationists while also embracing the title of New South Politician. Here with us on Due South to unpack the nuances of President Carter's legacy is Dr. Nancy Mitchell, professor of history at North Carolina State University and the author of the book, Jimmy Carter in Africa. Dr. Mitchell, welcome to Due South. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Jimmy Carter's identity as a Southerner is inextricable from his legacy as president. Let's talk a bit about his Southern roots. Uh, Jimmy Carter was born in, um, (laughs) not even in Plains, Georgia. People think it was Plains, but it was actually a kind of suburb of Plains, if you can have that, which was Archery, um, Georgia, very, very far South Georgia. And um, he grew up there. His father was one of the prominent people there. He grew up um, in archery where practically everyone he played with was black. Um, There were only two white families in archery, and um, his family owned a lot of land and had a lot of workers, black workers working on their property, who were essentially... um, a kind of just one step away from slavery. Yeah. Um, it was a very tough, a very tough area. Um, and then he left Plains and went into the Naval Academy and only came back to Plains to his southern roots when his father died and he took over the peanut farming business. A couple of quick just points and a quick follow-up here. Uh, this is the Jim Crow South in which James Carter is born in the mid-1920s. This is a very segregated time and place, but as you note, he has many friends, young black boys and black girls who he's playing with. Uh, the Navy, World War II, did he serve? No, um, he, 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 he missed combat. Um, and he was then uh, appointed to serve in one of the earliest atomic programs, working with atomic submarines. And he loved, he loved that. And particularly his wife, Rosalind, loved that life. Um, mm-hmm. But then when his father died, he felt like it was his obligation to go back to Plains. Yeah. And as, as probably most listeners know, he only left Plains to be governor in Atlanta and then to be president in Washington. And other than that, he spent the rest of his life in Plains. Carter's upbringing and its racial con. Carter's upbringing and its racial contrasts in particular followed him into his career as a politician. As governor of Georgia, he was considered fairly liberal on race, calling for an end to racial discrimination uh, in Georgia. As president, he was more moderate on race. Is that a fair characterization? No, I don't think it is. Um, I really think that Carter was, in a way like Johnson, Southerners have actually been able to be, I think, more progressive on race than than a lot of, of Northern white presidents have been. Um, Carter appointed, he was very 
determined as governor and then as president to not just to make a difference rhetorically, but to appoint um, women and blacks and Hispanics um, to high positions. And one of his most important appointments as president was Andrew Young, um, who became the he, he was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, but he really was much more than that. He was a very close advisor to Jimmy Carter and very influential. And people talked about Andrew Young at that point as maybe being the first black president. He was a very, very prominent figure in the Carter administration and I think made a very big difference. Andrew Young, somebody who is revered within the black community and this I don't, I don't even know the best way to articulate it, but this bright light in the American South throughout the civil rights. I mean, he was a civil rights leader and an incredibly important person uh, in American history. And he, as you know, was, was tethered very closely to President Carter. Um, let's go just one level deeper here. And then I, I want to move on to just, uh, just so much from President Carter's life. Uh, set up for us the, the landscape that included, I think, of uh, Senator Byrd from West Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, Senator Helms from uh, from North Carolina. There were segregationists. There were just open racists that were part of the political landscape that Jimmy Carter not only had to work with, did work with yeah. um, in order to achieve uh, the art of politics. But yeah. how, how did he navigate that? It's a very good question. Um, and you as a political reporter, you know, you know the story well. It was really a time, the 1970s, after the Civil Rights Act and particularly the Voting Rights Act, um, the 1970s were a really tumultuous time politically in terms of party affiliation. And you see this really clearly in North Carolina um, when you have the first Republican senator, Jesse Helms, who was a fascinating character, really. Um, his roots, particularly in radio, are very, I mean, segregationist would be a polite way of putting it. Fair enough. Um, and yet in the Carter period, he was he was facing re-election and he knew that he or he wanted to appeal to a broader section of the North Carolina population. And so you can see Jesse Helms maneuvering like a lot of previous segregationists, trying to maneuver to a kind of of moderate center on race, um, which I wouldn't call moderate today, but they were trying to, to get there on race. And, and um, you have obviously Byrd, um, you have a lot of overt segregationists in in Congress, and and they were um, very explicit about that. Jimmy Carter came into office really because in the Florida primary in 1976, he defeated George Wallace. Um, George Wallace had been a real thorn in the side of the Democratic Party. Um, expressing an aspect of the Democratic Party that Democratic Party leaders by the 1976 campaign wanted to disassociate themselves. And they thought that Jimmy Carter would be, although he was a really dark horse at that point in terms of winning the presidency, they thought that he would be the most capable of defeating George Wallace, a segregationist governor of Alabama, um, that he would be that Jimmy Carter would be able to defeat him in Florida, and so the other can other Democratic candidates didn't contest Florida, 
And mm-hmm. that gave Jimmy Carter a really big boost that he was able to defeat George Wallace in Florida. Dr. Nancy Mitchell is here with us on Due South. She's a professor of history at North Carolina State University. Uh, She has written a book about Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter in Africa. She has long studied the 39th president. So Jimmy Carter serves in the state Senate in Georgia, becomes the governor of Georgia. And in 1976, I should note, he carries North Carolina on his way to becoming uh, the 39th president of the United States. And since Jimmy Carter carried North Carolina in 1976. Only one other person who is a Democrat has carried this state. His name was Barack Obama. He carried it in 2008, and he carried the state by a mere 14,000 votes. So uh, that's just like this slight anomaly in terms of Democratic uh, White House hopefuls carrying North Carolina. Just a little bit of background there. So he ascends to the presidency. He's sworn in in early 1977. I don't, this is a foolish question. I'm going to ask you to condense the political landscape because there's so much going on at this time. But tell us what kind of political landscape he encounters. It's really, I think, uh, in my study of modern American history, it's really the most challenging time to be president. And you can look at this just, I think, in a few key dates. Um, First of all, you're, you're still dealing, as I just talked about, with the repercussions, particularly in the Democratic Party, of the Voting Rights Act and the real realignment that's taking place in the 1970s. Then you have the 1973 Arab-Israeli War and the oil crisis. So you have a very, a very, very shattered economy. Um, Then you have... um, in, in 1973, you've got Roe versus Wade, which was polarizing then and is continues to be polarizing today. So that makes politics very tricky, too. Then you have Nixon's resignation in 1974 and the ignominy of Watergate and the, the real erosion of trust in government. Um, that's consequent to that. And then in 75, you have the collapse of Saigon and the very bitter, bitter, divisive end of the U.S. war in Vietnam. And it's in that context that Jimmy Carter runs for president in 76 and then tries to pick up those pieces in 77. And I also, I am listening to you. I think I just stuck with you throughout that that list of things. I also want to just add, we had the Three Mile Island incident. We have a Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And uh, then on the back end of his his one term, we have less lesser important than what you know, but it is an international event. We have um, boycotting of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Yeah, I, I was just talking about what happened before he became president. Right. Um, but while he was president, and, and I think it's really very connected with the tumult that existed before he became president. It was a really difficult, chaotic time globally, um, not just politically in the United States, but globally in the four years that he was president. After the break, more on President Carter's legacy and his efforts in foreign policy. That's ahead on Due South. You're listening to Due South here on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. 
here in studio with Dr. Nancy Mitchell, professor of history at North Carolina State University and the author of the book, Jimmy Carter in Africa. Thinking about all that was in the the ethos in the 70s and this one-term Democratic president, I can't help but think of where we are right now with a first-term Democratic president who has all of these different whack-a-mole elements and challenges and controversies and, and conflicts that he is dealing with, President Biden. Is this reminiscent at all this moment to President Carter's? I think in some ways it is. Um, in other ways, obviously, it's completely different. You don't have the Cold War going on. Um, Donald Trump is is a oneer. Um, he's he's really not like anybody. I don't think we can make any parallels with anybody who was around it at during the Carter period. I don't think yeah. it would be fair. Um, but there is a sense of more balls that that Biden has to juggle than really is possible. And you get that sense, particularly in the last two years of the Carter presidency as well. One of President Carter's major accomplishments was the signing of the Camp David Accords. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what that entailed? And let's assume minimal knowledge for the listener. Here, let's, and I, I, that's not to, to insult our listeners. Let's just provide a little bit of basic background and then you can go deep on the context. Thank you, Professor. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of how to be concise here. Um, there had been, um, there was a war, an Arab-Israeli war immediately after the state of Israel was declared in 1948. There was another major Arab-Israeli war in 1967. There was another major Arab-Israeli war in 1973, just um, four years before Carter became president. All of those wars are called Arab-Israeli wars, but they, in a military sense, were really Israeli versus Egyptian wars. Egypt had the big army, um, and and it, it, other Arab uh, armies contributed, but it's really talking about Egypt. The 73 war, because the Middle East was really a very important in the Cold War, the 73 war became a real flashpoint between the United States and the Soviet Union and led to a nuclear alert. Um, so it was very dangerous. Furthermore, the 73 war led to the Arab-OPEC oil embargo, which then really undermined the U.S. economy, the global Western economy, but also the U.S. economy. When Jimmy Carter came into office, he was determined to try to create a peace in the Middle East so that these wars, which were becoming more frequent, if you look at it, 48 to 67 to 73, the wars were becoming more frequent and it seemed very possible that there could be a war in the four years of his first term. And so he was determined to bring peace to the Middle East. He also, as a very devout Southern Baptist had a very strong emotional link with Israel and with the state of Israel, um, really in biblical, in a, in a biblical history sense. So he tried in 1977, his first year as president, to create a general peace that would include all of the Arab states plus the Palestinians plus the Soviet Union, really everybody. And they'd all get together and they'd have a conference and they'd create peace. That turned out to be impossible. 
And so in 78, he narrowed his focus and focused just on the two key players in war, which were Israel and Egypt. And he invited, and this was really um, at his wife, Rosalind, um, urging. He, he, Jimmy Carter was reluctant, he was stubborn, and he was reluctant to give up the idea of a comprehensive peace. But that just wasn't possible in 1977. So in 78, he invited the leaders of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, and the leader of Israel, Menachem Begin, um, to Camp David. And for 13 days, he essentially was isolated up in Camp David with his team and with the Egyptian and the Israeli team, hammering out a peace between Egypt and Israel. And he succeeded. And this doesn't get as much credit as I think it really should get. If now there wasn't a peace with Egypt, we would be in a generalized Middle Eastern war right now. I don't have any, I can't prove it, but I don't have any doubt about it. Egypt was the key player. And it's in Jimmy Carter's administration that Egypt really makes a firm turn toward the United States, away from the Soviet Union, toward the United States. And that peace with Israel between Egypt, the major Arab army, and Israel has held to this day. Dr. Nancy Mitchell of North Carolina State University, professor of history here on Due South, chatting about President Jimmy Carter, his legacy, uh, and at the moment, uh, some of his international efforts, international policy, international conflict resolution. I'm going to attempt to bridge this from the Middle East to Egypt. We're now in Africa. Uh, and I want to talk about uh, some of his foreign policy efforts in Rhodesia, now known as Zimbabwe. Your book takes an extensive look uh, at President Carter's efforts in this part of the world. Why did the president turn his attention here? And please tell us about what he did there. Well, I, I could go on and on you about this. You could write this, a book about it yeah, or a chapter did, yeah. I think it's really fascinating. And it's one of the parts of Carter's legacy that isn't talked about very much. Um, the context of this is a Cold War context, um, which is that in 1970, late 1974, 1975, before Carter becomes president, when Ford is president and, Jim, and Henry Kissinger is secretary of state, um, there was de, the Portuguese government decolonized its African colonies. It was the very last to decolonize. The French and the British had decolonized back in the late 50s, early 60s. The Portuguese held on. And the two main places there were Mozambique and Angola. Mozambique um, settled pretty quickly into a black-ruled leftist government. Angola broke out into civil war. And that civil war led to the United States under Ford and Kissinger um, trying to intervene to get a moderate government. And the South Africans cooperated or colluded, the United States colluded with the South Africans and the South Africans invaded Angola, again, trying to get a more moderate government there in this civil war. This led Fidel Castro to intervene en masse 39,000 Cuban troops go to Angola without the blessing of Brezhnev, who was at that point the head of the Soviet Union. This was really a Cuban initiative. And they turn the tide in Angola. 
it's a very big deal in 1975, 1976. And when Carter becomes president, those Cuban troops are, and this was, the Angola was a humiliation for the United States, a victory for the Soviet Union. When Carter becomes president, those Cuban troops are still in Angola. They're still protecting Angola from South African military incursions into Angola. And there was a real fear that they could move elsewhere in Africa. And the place where they could move elsewhere in Africa most likely was Rhodesia, now known as Zimbabwe. And in Rhodesia, here race comes into it. Um, so you've got the Cold War with the Cubans in Angola, but you also have race. And what had happened in Rhodesia was it was a British colony. And when it became clear in the early 1960s that Britain was going to decolonize and it would lead to a black majority government, a white racist uh, ruler in Rhodesia, Ian Smith, declared unilateral declaration of independence. He declared that Rhodesia was henceforth free from the British, and he set up a kind of soft apartheid regime in Rhodesia. There were two guerrilla groups that were fighting against Ian Smith, and there was a real possibility that they would call on the Cubans in Angola to help them. If that happened, the United States would be in a real pickle right. um, because they'd either have to support Ian Smith, the white racist, right. or they'd have to support the people who were being supported by the Cubans, or they'd have to do nothing. The black citizens who constitute 96% of the population of Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, never had a chance to consider nor to vote for or against the Constitution under which the elections were held. The Constitution preserves extraordinary power for the 4% white minority. This is a rock and a hard place. It is a rock and a hard place, exactly. I think you've given thus far a, a wonderful snapshot of some of what is playing out in Africa, in the Middle East, in your word, certainly agree with it, tumultuous moment uh, in world history, not just American history. Given who he was, this Southerner who, who and I don't know that Jimmy Carter ever wanted to be president, right? Like there, there are some presidents who grow up wanting to be president. I've never read that Jimmy Carter was a 12-year-old who aspired to occupy the White House someday. Uh, so he's a really fascinating character for this particular tumultuous moment. Uh, could there be a president, Jimmy Carter, in contemporary America? Someone similar? Well, I think knowing what's happened recently, anything's possible. You know, I mean, Fair anything's enough. possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think um, it's, it's certainly possible. He was, um, you know, in the context that I've talked about before, and particularly with Watergate and the... And also Vietnam, the collapse of Saigon, um, there was such a need for fresh air. And Jimmy Carter was that. Jimmy Carter really didn't know his way around Washington. And he came in and he didn't, this is not a quote from Jimmy Carter, but I've read a lot of his campaign speeches. I've read about his campaign a lot. And basically what Jimmy Carter was saying 
in this period that was quite depressed. Americans were depressed about their country. Jimmy Carter went to small gatherings in the campaign and said, you're good people. This is a good country. I'm a good man. Vote for me. And people needed to hear that. And he was a good man. And so I think that's possible. I think, you know, it's the same with, with FDR, with Roosevelt, when he became president during the Depression. He gave people hope. And Jimmy Carter in 1976 gave people hope. I think a lesser known footnote, he was a known uh, environmental supporter. Uh, you mentioned fresh air. I want to pivot to clean air mm -hmm. uh, and clean energy. I think a lesser known footnote of his time, his administration in Washington, is that he had solar panels put on the roof of the White House. Spoiler, they're not there anymore. Uh, tell us what happened to the solar panels. And then if you would take a step back and tell us a little bit about his his record as an environmentalist or his record on environmental issues. Yeah. Well, the solar panels are, are an interesting story. Um Sort of a crazy story. I think um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a good documentary about it, actually. Um, Jimmy Carter, with a lot of fanfare, um, he had a, a very um, ambitious energy conservation program, and he wanted to model that. And he modeled that in a lot of ways, including putting solar panels, which, you know, back in the 1970s, these were very primitive solar panels, but they did heat all of the water in the White House and a couple of other things in the White House. So they, they were there and he put them up. Um, and it was with a lot of fanfare and people were excited about it. And he was up on the roof and, you know, it was a big deal. When Reagan came in, really because at that point, that kind of concern for energy and Carter was known for wearing cardigan sweaters because he had the and the temperature in the White House in the winter was so cold that everyone was meant to wear sweaters. And he would wear these cardigan sweaters, which were considered sort of not very macho. And Reagan comes in and doesn't think that this is macho enough and has the solar panels removed. And again, it's a big deal for the people who are opposed to this kind of regulation. Um, it, it, it was a big deal. Anyway, the solar panels ended up like in a, for a while in a, in a, small college in upstate Vermont, and a couple of them are in different um, build, uh, sort of businesses now, mm -hmm. just as models, you know, not as solar panels. They're completely outdated. Um, but Jimmy Carter had a really, a, a really ambitious energy program, and the solar panels were part of it. I've got to go a level deeper if you can speak to this. I'm curious if this is who he was, if this is who an advisor was pulling him to be. Like, he's a peanut farmer from Georgia, but he is clearly decades ahead of his time, at least on this particular issue. How did, like, why? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it really had to do with the energy crisis and the gas shortage and the realization among a lot of people at that time um, that something had to change. And um, I also think that being a farmer, he had much more of a sense of resources and of needing to preserve nature. 
of not being able to, you know, just do whatever you wanted with the land, but to really take care of the land and to take care of the earth. And I think those two things together, one was economic, really, the, the oil crisis, the gas shortage, the gas lines. And the other was a, an, a farmer's love of nature and of the earth. Farmers understand, by and large, that resources are finite. Exactly. And that, that the better you take care of the earth, the more profit you can make. You wrote the book, Jimmy Carter in Africa. And you interviewed President Carter in 2003, researching this book. I'd love for you to set this scene for us. Uh, where were you? What was this interaction, this conversation like two decades ago? Yeah, um, it was really fun. I had I had a, a, a lot of fun with it. He, um, I went to the Carter Center, which is in Atlanta. The Carter Center is, it has kind of two wings. One wing is the archive where all of his papers are kept. And the other wing is this Carter Center, which he and Rosalind set up after he left the presidency and has done um, and continues to do really amazing global work in, in election monitoring, trying to create peace in civil wars, and particularly in eradicating tropical diseases, particularly guinea worm. Um, which has been a real scourge in Africa. And the Carter Center has been really impressive in, in dealing with tropical diseases. Um, so I went there to the Carter Center. Um, I, he had a, a really small office, a very modest um, office. And there was a guy under the desk who was trying to fix his computer. So he, President Carter said, you know, let's let him do his work. And so we went into this really small living room. Um, I'm now in a studio that's maybe 12 by 12. That was going to be my guess, yeah. maybe 12 by 12. And I'd say his living room was just about this size with old sofas and chairs and stuff. But um, And we sat down. I sat in a chair and he sat on the sofa. His research assistant was there too. So it was just the three of us. And he knew that I wanted to interview him about Africa. And so the agreement was that I would ask him about Africa. And I had interviewed quite a lot of people at that point, particularly ambassadors, um, British uh, officials, Kaunda, the former president of Zambia. Um, and I was very aware that memory is very, very faulty. And through no fault of anybody's. Um, it's just that if you've had a busy life, you tend to jumble up the sequence of events and sometimes get dates wrong. You also, like, like I do now, most people don't speak in clear sentences. The things that were remarkable about President Carter were, first of all, he spoke in perfect sentences. When I transcribed the interview, mm. it was in incredible sentences, which really is unusual. And the other thing is he got nothing wrong. I had done a lot of research. I did a lot of research afterwards. Um, he had his facts very straight and he had no notes. He had nothing. It was really impressive. Just ahead, Dr. Nancy Mitchell discusses President Carter's life, post-presidency, and also attending the Sunday school classes that the former president taught in his hometown of Plains, Georgia. 
Dr. Nancy Mitchell is here with us on Due South. She's a professor of history at North Carolina State University. Uh, she has written a book about Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter in Africa. She has long studied the 39th president. So as a former political reporter and with due respect to the former president, he was a politician. There must have been some spin. There must have been a narrative that at times you feel, oh, here's where he wants to go. Because that's, in my experience, what elected officials and what what politicians, again, respectfully, often do. This is part of the job. He wasn't a politician then, and he only was a politician really for eight years in his long life, and it was already long two decades ago. Um, and I was mostly asking him about Rhodesia, and that's a very good story for him. His policy was enlightened and effective in Rhodesia. So. I, you know, I, I don't think um, that he spun it. So President Carter is an outlier as we think about the other recent presidents in our country, Reagan and Bush and Bush and Clinton and Obama and Trump. He's just so much different than them. And behind every good, strong, successful man is a very valuable partner. Talk to me about his uh, love of 77 years, his wife of um, almost eight decades. She was a fascinating woman, um, a woman, I would say, a very Southern woman, mm -hmm. a woman of enormous intelligence combined with grace. Um, and she was, Jimmy Carter would not have been uh, Jimmy Carter without her. I don't have any doubt about that. And I've been to a number of conferences where the two of them were together up on the stage on a panel and somebody in the audience would ask President Carter a question and President Carter would begin to answer. And then you'd see Rosalind just whisper a few words in his ear and he'd sort of look a little startled and he'd change course. You know, he'd remember something mm. that she had reminded him. Um, she was a, a really important sounding board for him. And as, as was finally kind of recognized uh, in the eulogies when she died, um, a very important advocate for mental health, for improving treatment of mental health and of um, caregivers and the hard, hard life that caregivers have. Very, a very impressive woman. Always, uh, not always, but almost always took a second, didn't outshine the president, mm -hmm. um, but was a very important force. I believe it was in conjunction with their 75th wedding anniversary, the Washington Post did what I thought was a just a beautiful piece about largely about their love affair and about this elderly couple that would hold hands in Plains, Georgia, mm -hmm. as Secret Service would walk 20 yards behind them. <laughs> uh, Plains was part of their life. So, too, was church mm -hmm. and Sunday school. Tell us about, and I think some of our listeners know this, but Jimmy Carter was a, a long, eight years in the public sphere. He was a, a Sunday school teacher for decades and de decades. Uh, and you had a chance to witness that. Yeah, he, he, he even taught Sunday school when he was president. The first time that I saw President Carter, I was thinking that eventually I might write um, something about him. I was fascinated by his presidency. And so I happened to be in Atlanta and on Sunday I drove down 
it's basically due south three three hours roughly from Atlanta to watch him teaching Sunday school. And I did it because I wanted to see the former president. I wanted, I just wanted to get a sense of him. And so I went to his church, which is outside of the little town of Plains. There is a beautiful old church in Plains, but he and a group of people from the church um, separated from that church because it refused to admit African-Americans. And so they started their own church, which is in a really modest, modern, low building outside of, in the sort of outskirts of Plains. So I went there and I thought, oh, I must have gotten the wrong date. Um, nobody's here. The parking lot was empty and everything. Um, but I went into the church and I said, is President Carter teaching Sunday school? And they said, oh yeah, honey, she's, she, he's teaching um, out in the, in the parish hall. And so I knock on the door of the parish hall and I say, is President Carter teaching Sunday school? And, and um, this, you know, probably younger than me now, but this what I what looked to me like little old church Georgia church lady um, showed me ushered me in and to a very small room with folding chairs, and I sat in the front row, and I was only maybe three when President Carter came in I was maybe three feet from him, and I thought okay I can't take notes because that would be rude, um, but I need to remember and so I had my kind of scholars what I think of as my scholars hat on trying to remember. He was um, in the Baptist church, you, you're, the people who teach Sunday school are all given a Bible verse that they have to teach about. And the Bible verse that he was teaching about was about forgiveness. And I was trying to remember everything that he said about forgiveness. And then after a while, I, I realized that this was different. He wasn't teaching Sunday school. And I thought of a word that I had read, but had never used, which was witnessing. Hmm. He was witnessing. He was there witnessing what his faith was. I really think that to understand Jimmy Carter, you have to have a very clear sense of how profound his faith was. Just one time you watched him? Teach no. Um, I then went down by myself when, when I, I did a lot of research in the Carter mm -hmm. Library and I would go down sometimes on Sundays, the library was closed. So I would go down to, to Plains if he was teaching Sunday school. He traveled a lot when he, when, when he left the presidency, especially with the Carter Center. So sometimes okay. he wasn't teaching. Um, but then I also led um, trips of students mostly graduate students who were doing research on Carter um, from NC State University. Um, we would go down to the archive. We'd do some work in the archive. And then on Sunday, we'd all go down to Plains and, and, um, and listen to the president, the former president, teaching Sunday school. There are other important chapters to his life. Uh, this man won a Nobel Peace Prize long after he left the White House in 2002. Uh, do you get the sense that he is better regarded by the American public for his time in elected office or for his work and the decades that followed? Oh, definitely. Um, today, 
uh, you know, lots of people will say, oh, yeah, well, he was a terrible president, but he was great, a good man, a great ex-president. And I I think that that has a lot of, of reasons why people say that. Um, but I, I think one of them is that there still are people, not you, Jeff, but there are a lot of people alive who remember him and remember his presidency. And it was a really tough time. And people tend to remember how they felt rather than policy. And how they felt in the late 70s was bad. Uh, you had stagflation, very high unemployment, very high inflation. You have the um, Iran hostage crisis. You know, the bad things were happening. And so people remember that. And, and that's normal. That's human. But those people are going finally, you know, to to not be around. And then I think that what you, you know, what will happen is people will begin to look more at the policy and um, and appreciate more uh, what Carter tried to do. The what if game is a largely useless endeavor, but as a former political reporter, I admittedly love playing it. What if Jimmy Carter, what if the, the landscape were different and Jimmy Carter won re-election in 1980? Would that have been better for the Jimmy Carter legacy? Or that have really hijacked and, and usurped some of what he was able to accomplish in the, the 40 years that followed? I, I think it would, have, it would have been better for his, um, for the view of him as president and I also, although I agree with you, it's completely useless as a completely game. Completely useless. But it's fun. Oh, sorry, Liz. Um, yeah. Um, but I also think it would have been better for the world. And and I think this most acutely right now when you have, um, I'm, t I'm talking now when the war in Gaza is really um, raging. And I have no doubt, um, but that had Jimmy Carter won a second term, one of his main priorities would have been to try to create a broader peace in the Middle East. I have no doubt about that. Um, he was, and he continued to be really obsessed with violence in the Middle East after he became president. I mean, after he left the presidency. Um, and I think that there, you know, he, he was very stubborn and uh, he felt that at Camp David, Menachem Begin, the, the leader of Israel at the time, had promised not to build more settlements um, of Israelis on the West Bank and in Gaza. And he felt strongly and feels, I, I think, uh, continually that Menachem Begin misled him and continued to build settlements. And he felt personally outraged by this. And I think partly that, plus his his love for Israel, um, really from a from from his roots, um, and his desire for a broader settlement than Camp David, I think he really would have focused on that. And I think it was possible. What do political followers, the American public, people of my generation? still miss when it comes to President Carter? <laughs> Pretty much everything, um, you know, a lot. Um, you know, if, to the extent that people have any sense of him at all, I think they think of him mostly as a failed president. 
He failed to win a second term and he governed during very grim times. And Reagan came in and on a white horse and saved the country. Um, if people have a little bit more knowledge of the period, they tend to think, oh yeah, he was the guy who tried to do human rights and it didn't really work. Um, I think both images are incomplete and inaccurate um, to deal first with human rights. It's true, Carter tried to, to implement human rights and was successful in many ways, but he never was going, he was a cold warrior. Uh, he was conservative in many ways. Um, he was always going to put U.S. national security ahead of human rights. Human rights were important, but um, U.S. national security, he was president of the United States. You know, U.S. national security was the, the main thing. And, right. and if human rights um, conflicted with his vision of how to preserve U.S. national security, he, they, they took a, a backseat. In terms of Reagan, um, it's really interesting how effective the Reagan team was in really belittling the accomplishments of President Carter. This is typical, you know, when, when changing parties, you know about changing parties. There's nothing unusual about this, but they were particularly effective. And I think they were particularly effective largely because Carter didn't have a loyal following. Um, Democrats were disenchanted with Carter by the time he left office. And very few people came to his defense. And Carter himself really had very little interest in defending his record. And I think this had a lot to do with his faith that he really believed that he'd done good things, he'd done his best, as he says, he'd done his best, um, and it would all be okay. Uh, God would see that, that justice was done. So he didn't feel frantic, and he wasn't going to continue in politics. Mm -hmm. um, so he didn't really defend his record. The Reagan team was, and then, of course, Mondale, Jimmy Carter's vice president, runs against Reagan in 1984. Did, and did he run? Did yeah. He, did, he, did he run? Yeah. I'm being totally facetious. He barely ran, right? Like well, it, was, it was a landslide. It, it was, was a landslide, it, yeah. yeah. And it was another opportunity to talk about how terrible the Carter record was. So it really got reinforced there. Mm. Um, I, I, I really believe that, that in the future, you know, Carter's not going to be among the great presidents, but I think there's a lot to respect and admire in his presidency. To that point, the shifting sands of history, if you will, uh, is his legacy complete? If his time is complete, his legacy today, do you think it's going to appear in any way significantly different or altered 10, 20, 100 years from now? Or is the legacy as it is today largely going to hold? No, I think it'll change. Um, it's really interesting as a historian to see how images change. Um, partly it's because new information comes out. Um, partly it's because 
somebody writes a very popular book that catches on and is scholarly, but not too dense. And, you know, you look at Truman. When Truman left office, he was incredibly unpopular. Um, and now his, his legacy is changing. Um, a couple of books, a movie. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think it's really, I, I, I think it's one of the more interesting things in being a historian. People think, oh yeah, you know, that's a study, you know, you read a few books and you don't have to change your lectures. No, you've got to change your lectures all the time because the perspective, the knowledge, the image is changing. She penned the book, Jimmy Carter in Africa. It is about just a splice of the 39th president's efforts uh, around the world to seek peace and uh, avoid further conflict. Her name is Dr. Nancy Mitchell. She's a professor of history at North Carolina State University, and she has been our guest here on Due South for uh, really a fascinating uh, conversation about the former president, James Earl Carter. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. It has been. Due South is a production of WUNC and the broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. For Leonita Inge, I'm Jeff Tiberi. Thanks for listening. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up.